Good evening. I'm Mark Lawson. Um, this is, as you know, because some of you are probably coming here tonight, this is a set currently being used for James I, James II, and James III. But tonight it's Richard I, um, as uh, he's widely known in theatre. Um, no, in fact, known, known as uh, Sir Richard Eyre, or Richard, but as he reveals in his latest book, What Do I Know? People, Politics, and the Arts, um, known to only one person as Rich. Um, who, who is it who called you Rich? Well, this is Judy Dench, um, who is known to me as Jude, and um, she is the only person who has um, always called me Rich since, and I first met her um, 40-something years ago, and um, she called me Rich from the first moment, and is still calling me Rich, and she's coming up for a significant birthday. Mm. Still calling me Rich. <laughs> and uh, Richard Eyre, Rich, Sir Richard, um, a man much loved in the theatre and respected, as he probably should be, um, as one of our finest directors. The only people who don't like him are writers and journalists, because um, as well as being one of the best theatre directors around, he is also the bastard. Um, very, <laughs> good, very good writer as well. Um, <laughs> extraordinarily good. But at least only one person on this stage tonight is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and it's him. <laughs> um, so uh, the the right. Oh, that's that's <laughs> no, a no, terrible no, no, injustice. <laughs> no, yeah. well, there you go. Um, the writing, because you do. I mean, this is th uh, 281 pages, and this was um, in between all the directing, the musicals, Stephen Ward, Mary Poppins, uh, Ibsen's Ghosts. Uh, all the rest of it, um, the Nick Deer plays, uh, going back over the years. Um, so it's really, it's extraordinarily prolific. I mean, you do a lot of it. I, I do a lot of it. Uh, I think I say somewhere in the, in the book that, um, or I've certainly written it, so this isn't uh, a, a fresh confession, that I've never done anything in my life that hasn't been suggested to me. And th this is sort of, in, in some ways, a sort of lamentable admission. I would never have become a director if it hadn't been suggested to me. I would have never continued to be a director if somebody has, hadn't said to me, you know, you must choose between being an actor and being a director. I would never have uh, written at all if it hadn't been for the publisher, Liz Calder, um, who started Virago Press, and uh, was also the publisher of Harry Potter. Uh, and Liz Calder approached me when I was director of the National Theatre and I'd written a piece, I think, for the Evening Standard about being director of the National Theatre. And she invited me out to lunch and said, I, I think you should write a book. And I was absolutely astonished and slightly horrified at the idea that Liz would think that I would write a showbiz autobiography because I couldn't imagine what else I could write about. And so I said, well, thank you very much, Liz, uh, very kind, but I can't, uh, couldn't, won't. And then both my parents died and it had a very profound effect on me, much, much more so I can see now than I felt at the time. And I felt an overwhelming urge to write about them. And that's how I, I wrote my first book. But for some years, I'd been practicing as a writer, 
sort of without knowing it or without admitting to myself, because I was writing a diary. Of which there are some quotes in this book, and then there was a whole, there was a separate collection of those, the National Theatre. There was uh, called National Service, Mm. um, which I missed by four months. (laughs) Um, And I've always felt, I mean, I I think our generation, particularly our, our generation, is somehow... I don't know if they're blighted or blessed by the absence of war. And I, I write some, in this book, I was asked by Sarah Sands, who was then deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph. Uh, I'd written a piece for her and she said, I think you should do an interview. Who would you like to interview? And I found myself saying, I'd like to interview General Sir Mike Jackson, who was at that time head of the... Uh, British Armed Forces. Um, and so I interviewed General Mike, <laughs> who does actually speak exactly yeah. like that. Um, and it was my curiosity about it really was to do with the fact that I had been, I was part of this generation that had, was born during the Second World War and had grown up in peace and had never been challenged. And I think probably politicians are the only tribe of people now who feel that very acutely, the fact they haven't been challenged, whereas all their, the generation before were all people who'd been through the war, through the last war, had served in the last war, and were very, very cautious about committing this country to, to wars. And, and one of your duties over the years has been to explain the titles of David Hare's plays that you've directed, and that's why one of them is called The Absence of War. I don't think it actually appears in the text, does it? I no. Um, but it's that idea, it's that that was the generation that hadn't been yes, tested. Yes, and, and it is, it, it's about that generation of, of politicians who haven't been tested and have very confused and conflicted feelings about war and about soldiering and I've always been fascinated by it because I come from a family again I think I say somewhere in the book that that like the Kinnocks, Neil Kinnock famously said um, I come from uh, a thousand years of Kinnocks and I'm the first first Kinnocks in a thousand years to go to university well I was the first heir in a thousand years to to go to university because Everybody else in my family served in the forces. So in some way, I am fascinated by that. I'm fascinated that about two-thirds, if not more, of Shakespeare's plays are about uh, war, about people who have been in war, about men, uh, men challenging themselves by war. Uh, and of course, I directed a film called Tumbledown, which was... Mm about Charles the Wood. Falklands War. And um, just before I became director of the National Theatre, and uh, I became very conspicuous in the eyes of um, the Times and the Telegraph. Was I an appropriate man to be director of the National Theatre? And there's a quote, isn't there, in the, um, one of the pieces in here, the set of tributes, one of them is um, an introduction to the plays of Charles Wood. Um, the writer of Tumbledown, and you, you tell a story in there where someone says that they don't mind um, people criticising the yes. British Army, they're just very choosy about who does it, yes, and they just think you and Charles Wood were the appropriate no, people. It's interesting that man, because he is, 
I forget his name, but he's a very, very distinguished military historian who wrote a really wonderful book called The Face of Battle. Was it John Keegan? John Keegan, John Keegan yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I was very um, annoyed that he was quoted as saying that since the, the subject of the film, the subtitle could have been The Face of Battle uh, because it was precisely, it wasn't in an obvious sense, a political film. It was really examining um, a, how we send people off to do killing for us, but also what, the, what inhabits the minds uh, uh, of those who we do send off. Charles Wood, that was one of the happier uh, duties, which was introduction to his collected plays. There is inevitably, when you get to a certain age, there's something melancholy about this because so many of them are obituaries or eulogies at funerals or memorial services. Yes, well, that happens. Um, it is, but it's. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was thinking about this because, um, uh, I mean, journalism has become more and more obsessed now with getting the pieces as early as possible. So I, I wrote four last week for people who aren't even dead. It's like the mafia sending the, um, uh, the hearse round first. But it is, um, I find it the most awful responsibility because you're summing up a life. Yes, I haven't, um, I haven't actually yet written an obituary for someone who is still with us. Um, I was honoured, incredibly flattered, to be asked to uh, do the eulogy at John Mortimer's funeral, which is sort of almost a state occasion. Um, and one of, the, one of the frightening things of it, it was in this beautiful parish church in the, near the house where John had been brought up, uh, and um, his father had built the house and John had lived there all his life. Which is and the house in a voyage around my That's, that's yeah, right, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I looked out in the audience and there were at least 30 people sitting in the audience, the congregation of the church, who I could see all felt, now why is he doing this and not me? <laughs> <laughs> the other... Um, one of the most amazing historical details I've ever read is you write a piece by Mary Soames, who, when you were running the National Theatre here, was the chair of the board. And you explained in the beginning she'd been put in to sort out the pinkos um, yes. by the Conservative government at the time. But there's this extraordinary and haunting detail you used to, um, you describe, uh, after events here, would often drive back down Whitehall and tell us what would happen. Well, Mary, this is Mary Soames, who's, um, was, she, d she died earlier this year, she died in May. Um, she was Churchill's youngest daughter, substantially younger than her two sisters, Sarah and Diana, and very much younger than her brother, Randolph. Um, Mary was the one who survived, who didn't get scorched by her parenthood. Uh, possibly because she was so much younger than the others and was brought up separately. Mary had uh, been married to Christopher Soames, who had many jobs for the Tory party, was a great a grandee of the Tory party, and was famously um, the, the ambassador in, in our ambassador in Paris and, and uh, was negotiating the... Um, Rhodesian um, settlement um, before it became with Mugabe before it became Zimbabwe. So Christopher died, and Mary, who was revered, uh, admired, 
loved by everybody who knew her. There was a feeling, I think, among um, the Tory party that there was Mary, there was this wonderful woman who should be given something to do. So anyway, the something to do was to sort out the pinkos at the <laughs> National Theatre. <laughs> and Mary was, Mary was um, appointed and I was invited by Richard Luce, who was then the Minister of Libraries, to meet Mary at the, um, at the, the, the ministry in Whitehall. And I was completely capsized by her. She was utterly charming, utterly beautiful, and sure as hell was nobody's fool. And uh, she said to me, Richard, I know absolutely nothing about the theatre. Uh, Christopher would, know, would never go to it. And Christopher would never go to it she, because he was frightfully tall and his legs, there, there was never enough room uh, in the theatre for, for his legs. It seemed a fair enough it explanation. Is a problem, yeah. it, it's, mm. Yes, well, mm. there you are, you suffer. Mm. Um, anyway, Mary became the most brilliant chair of the national and she always insisted incidentally on being called chairman not chair uh, she became a brilliant benign inspirational chairman of the the national theater led from the front got to know everybody in the theater was always visible in the theater even if we put on things that she didn't like she was always there supporting us even if she'd say to me richard I do think it was a terrible mistake to put that <laughs> on. Uh, but she, would, she was um, noble in her support and uh, loving in her support. And she used to have um, functions. She'd have a dinner, like John Major got appointed prime minister. So she said, we must have him for the to the national field. So we had a dinner where um, John Major uh, said at one point to... Um, uh, she said, and how are you getting on number 10? He said, well, Norma finds it awfully hard. Um, she has to take the washing back to Northampton. <laughs> and Mary was absolutely confounded by this. And after he'd left, said, doesn't she realise they have staff? <laughs> um, anyway, Mary used to like to wind down after functions like that or fundraising functions. And I would take her home and my wife and I would drive back or we'd get a taxi and we'd always go across Westminster Bridge and past the statue of her father, Winston Churchill, that um, gigantic statue at the corner of Parliament Square. And as we passed, she'd always say, night, night, papa. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that astonishing? You see, that's one of the bits, how many people in the world could do that? But, um, that is, but when you're writing in a eulogy or an obituary or a tribute to someone who's still living. It's looking, it's those details, isn't it, that you're looking for? Uh, uh, absolutely. I, I think, um, well, I think detail is everything. I think, the, um, I think bad writing, bad art, it's all generalised and, and good art is all specific. It's, it's a huge um, kind of pyramid of, of detail. And it's sometimes if you, I have found a few times, because when you're asked to write an obituary of somebody you know very well, it's a, it's a very, very intense um, experience which focuses the mind in a very healthy way, which I think, I don't envy 
your task at all, writing obituaries of, of people who are still alive, because by definition, you have a completely mm. different attitude. And, and the one thing that is lacking is that sense of, of you know, what remains of them. Um, and that's, to me, a critical thing, is what remains of them is love or admiration or, or both. And that's why I think it has to be done while the pen is hot. Mm. The, um, there's a lot, as there probably should be, about directing and the process of directing. Do you know, apart from the obvious words like I and the and so on, do you know which word um, recurs most often in this volume? Um, self? No. The only, um, the only other document in which it occurs so often is the Vatican Guide to Contraception. The word is rhythm. Rhythm? Yeah. <laughs> rhythm. How <coughs> interesting. But I, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give some context. I was really struck by this, that um, Peter Hall, when you write about him, uh, it's all about, I mean, his attitude, Shakespeare, is about the rhythm. You've got to find the rhythm of the verse. It's like jazz, about finding the rhythm and then where you vary f uh, from it. David Mamer, he write about Patrick Marver. They both say it's about rhythm, and they get infuriated with actors who can't hear the rhythm of the words. David Hare then says exactly the same thing, that he, he gets exasperated with actors for that reason. And I was really struck by that, because I'd never thought about it to that degree. Well, it comes up in Pinter as well, um, perhaps more obviously, because uh, he has more obviously heightened um, style of dialogue. But that... Um, I was really fascinated by that. That, that is what, it's, it's, it's almost musical. In um, way. I think it is musical. It's very hard to talk about directing because it's something that is done in private and you, you can never observe another director in the act of directing. Um, but I sometimes compare it to, I was watching once a masterclass in conducting on the TV um, and the masterclass was given by Daniel Barenboim, and there were six students, graduate students of conducting, you know, very, very advanced, sophisticated musicians. And they had to, the, the job was to bring in the orchestra at the end of a cadenza of a Mozart piano concerto. And I was sitting there thinking, well, surely anyone could do this. And only two of the two of the, the um, would-be conductors could do it. And it was really interesting, all about timing and getting the people to go with. And I've spent, in the last few years, I've spent a lot of time directing opera. I've been very, very lucky. And the last two conductors I've worked with are um, James Levine at the Met and Simon Rattle and the production in Baden-Baden. And just watching their, the way they communicate with the orchestra, and it's so hard to, it's so hard to describe what they do, but they have an authority and the rhythm. And it's interesting what particularly Levine, when we were, I've, I've just done a production of Marriage of Figaro there, and Levine in the early stages of orchestral rehearsals was doing this gesture a lot. And some of the singers say, said to me, I just can't tell where the beat is and then gradually every rehearsal it got clearer and clearer and clearer and then it was absolutely unambiguous and actually what he was doing 
was listening to them. He wasn't instructing, this is where it lived, there. And that's, that, to me, is, is good directing, good conducting. And he was fascinating during notes. I would be saying, you know, I think you've got to feel this, that uh, handed over to Jimmy. And I expected him always to say, you know, you're behind the beat there, or, you know, your tempo is wrong, or, or, or your pitch is a bit dodgy there. And he'd always say, listen, I can see what you're doing with the character, but could you just be a little warmer in that passage? Because this is what I think is going on between that character and the other character. And they were all what I would describe as director's notes. But a comparison with orchestras, I was thinking about that in another way, because I've interviewed a lot of conductors, and they talk about the fact that um, orchestras will resist the conductor, um, Berlin and Vienna being famous oh, yeah. for this. And I asked them, what, and a lot of uh, conductors have said to me, as long as you've got more than half on your side, you'll be okay. Yeah. But directors can't really work like that, can no, they? It's a different thing in theatre. I mean, there are a lot of lawyers come to the National Theatre in the evening, so they will be vague about this, but there have been two cases in the West End of the last year in which an actor has suddenly left a production because they simply didn't get on with someone they were yeah. on stage with. They've got to all be on the same side, haven't they, in theatre? They, they really have. And, and part of the job, well, part of the job of the conductor, but a more conspicuous part of the job of a director, is to form a, a society. This is, this is a society in microcosm. And part of the director's responsibility has to be to make a healthy society, to which everybody is contributing regardless of their i mean there's always an implicit hierarchy of size of part and 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 talent but you have to organize the society in such a way that those that it's seamless it's socially seamless that everybody is contributing towards the end the aims of of the production and that is that's a sort of uh, a cruel of um, just anecdotage and conversation and day after day after day, you are making this society work. And I don't really think of it consciously now, except if I think, oh, there's somebody there who seems very discontented. And then I'll probably talk to them later. And it's, of course, it gets exponentially more difficult. If you have the last play I directed, um, The Ghosts, mm. had five people. So, you know, as five people as a social group is very manageable. Twelve people, the number of disciples, is about the maximum size. Once you get beyond twelve people, then it gets exponentially more difficult because there are so many people and, you know, you're watching somebody there and somebody there and you have to um, pull them all together. And that actually links to the reason you became a director, apart from someone suggested it. You were in the, because you were an actor before, you were in the chorus of a musical. Which, I was, yes, yes. Which actually speaks to what he was saying. So you, you felt neglected and useless. Um, I felt useless. Um, <laughs> I felt rightly neglected because I was so bad. Uh, and I think it was, it was um, generous of the director of that production not to fire me. But I was, I was massively discontented and in a sort of poisonous way. The whole of the male chorus were very discontented and we were, we were shocking. Our behaviour was absolutely shocking and 
shameful. And please, audience who saw that production, please, please forgive me. Um, it was just... But it did... It gave me a feeling what being on the other side of the fence is like. Um, and I did more as an actor, had more of those experiences than benign experiences where I thought that the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. There is, uh, we talked about this before in various places, but there is a ki- an idea in the culture that acting is sort of silly and easy and it's not serious work. Um, and nobody sensible compares it to going down the mines or going to war. But when you see an actor, when you see Leslie Manville at the end of Ghosts or um, Jonathan Price at the end of Hamlet or comedians, it is like Mo Farah at the end of a race. I mean, it's physically, it's, sca- it's scary and physically draining. Act- uh, great acting, isn't it? I, I think it is. Um, I really like actors and I admire actors and they do, uh, as I like and admire singers, uh, they do something that we can't do. I mean, look at this stage. The idea that a single person can occupy this, the centre of this notoriously difficult I was going to say, particularly this stage, because there is famously um, a writer you write about in the book, so it's appropriate, um, Mi- Michael Bryan, one of the greatest uh, national theatre actors ever, but he, he located the one spot on this stage. Yes, which, if, you, um, if you did a show with Michael Bryant, you can always see him sort of gravitating towards <laughs> this one. Or, and it, it is about that. Yeah, it is about here. Yes. Or Michael Gambon. Who said to me, oh yeah, acting at the Olivier, it's like being radar. What he meant was you have to go like that to <laughs> scan the audience from this spot. In your piece about David Hare, um, you quote from his memoir, Acting Up. He describes two kinds of director. Crudely, uh, the, the interventionist and the editor. Crudely, interventionists possess a vision of the work towards which they are at all times working. The show is already conceived before they begin, and they have an idea of the production which they need the actors to help them achieve. Editors, on the contrary, work pragmatically, looking all the time at what they're offered, refining it constantly, and then exercising their taste to help the actor give their best. And then um, David Hare says that he's uh, been most often directed at that stage by you and by Howard Davis. Howard Davis he categorises as an interventionist, Richard Eyre as an editor. Now, you say the truth in my experience is somewhere in between. So you just say so you have to go in with a plan, but you have to be willing to well react. You have a plan and the plan is conceived um, working with the designer. So it's not empty headed. I mean I have a a sense of what a production should be, but I tend not to spell it out in huge detail to the actors. Uh, for fear that the actors will feel, oh, I see, there is this grand conceit, and I play this part, and, and the jigsaw fits together. At some point, I mean, I, I wasn't good enough, and, and I stopped acting, because it was, as, as uh, John Gielgud said, acting is half glory and half shame. And for me, it was three-quarters shame <laughs> and, and and I stop but I know I know what it takes and you have to have ownership an actor has to feel here I am I have confidence and if they don't have confidence if they feel that they're just a surrogate for the director it's never going to work 
And Howard is, you know, Howard is not, I mean, you'll all have seen many of Howard's production. He's not an uh, interventionist. In the, his productions are not what the Germans call concept productions. It's not regie theater, which is, you know, director's theater. Um, and we, I think we, most British directors recoil against that kind of regie theater, which is, which, and, and David, David has a literary habit of saying, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I would say there are two kinds of people in the world. One is the people who divide people into <laughs> two and those who don't. <laughs> a lot of directors have said this to me, that it's, one of the problems is that even if you have a company who like each other and get on, the people work in completely different ways and different speeds. And so this is what I, as an outsider to it, find hardest, how you deal with this, that there are actors who are notoriously hopeless and at sea for weeks in rehearsal, and then other people who turn up in effect with a performance. And you've got to somehow deal with both of them. Well, I, I would say that's a, a parallel problem or the corollary of what I spoke about before, creating a social unit. You have a social unit with people of vastly differing experiences, lives, uh, intelligence, learning, and they, they work at different rhythms. And some people are like dancing on rooftops by day three, and others you think they're just going to keep their hand hidden until the dress rehearsal. And you just have to, you have to moderate that. Um, and you have to make sure that people aren't dying of frustration, exasperation, and there isn't a sort of rash of, of um, complaint. You just have to manage it. And that's, that's, Directing. But then sometimes yeah. you think, oh God, I've cast the wrong person. Sometimes you think, I keep thinking they're going to, you know, they've kept their hand concealed and then they're going to play it. And then... And then it's the last night. It's the last night <laughs> and they've never played their hand. Um, but I'm, I... It, it, the thing that shocks me a lot about uh, theatre, American theatres, they have a culture where you fire somebody, you know, in rehearsals or f fire somebody in preview. And I think that's massively bad faith. People I think have been fired at the interval on Broadway, haven't yeah. they? And then the understudy's gone. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's just bad. Mm. I mean, but that's true, I think, of, of uh, a lot of bad practice in American theatre. I think if you cast somebody, you cast them because you believe that they're capable and it's, it's, it's a contract between you and that actor and you have, to, you have to fulfill that and you have to try your hardest to, uh, to vindicate your instinct um, about, that, about casting that actor. Very good point. Um, stop. Uh, Richard Eyre will be signing copies uh, in the foyer. Um, thank you very much to all of you uh, and to Richard Eyre. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks.